Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So here we go. Let's let's just talk a little bit. So there is, as we mentioned, there is an overlap uh, of the Passover this year. Um, and But that's not always true because they follow different methods of calculating the date. But this year, what we've got is that Passover, which is called the Festival of, of Unleavened Bread, it's basically a week-long celebration. Um, it starts on sundown this year of Friday, April 15th, and it concludes at nightfall of Saturday, April 23rd. Now, you may wonder the difference, what the difference between sundown and nightfall is, and this has to do with the way that the Hebrew calendar records days, which actually start at sundown. Um, and I don't know exactly, but I did look up, and, and nightfall is about 72 minutes after sundown. Now, the reason this happens is because it's actually based upon a certain number of miles, um, apparently, that the uh, average Jew could walk um, after sundown. And it has something to do, again, with the laws and the regulations and when the new day actually starts at nightfall and not right at sundown. And so it's all kind of complicated, but the holiday is from sundown April 15th to nightfall Saturday, April 23rd. The Easter, or, or to make it more of a comparison, we'll look at the whole week, the Holy Week of Easter, which includes Palm Sunday, which is today, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then, of course, Easter itself, is from Sunday, April 10th to Sunday, April 17th this year. So as you can see, there is an overlap. Um, you might wonder why they're different. First of all, though, the Passover and Easter both, you'll notice Passover. Why isn't Passover always at the same time every year? And why isn't Easter at the same time every year? And the reason for that is this. Our calendar that we follow for most things is a solar calendar, right? It has to do with how often we go around the sun and where we are in our, in our process around the sun. And so that's a solar calendar. But both Easter and Passover are measured by the lunar calendar. So they're measured according to when the moon uh, is up and what's going on with the moon. Now, Passover and Easter are the same because they don't measure it the same way, but they do both measure by, by the moon. So in case you've ever been curious, Easter is calculated as the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the beginning of spring. And the beginning of spring is March 21st. So if you follow that, Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after March 21st, every year. And, and uh, that's why it always falls on a Sunday, but it doesn't always fall on the same date. It just depends on when that moon is, and it depends on, on uh, yeah, when the first full moon is after that. Passover dates are pegged to the Hebrew calendar. So you'll notice that that Easter is kind of a hybrid. It's, it's paid to the lunar. It has to do with the moon, the full moon. But it's also connected to the solar calendar that we use, that being March 21st and the first day of spring. So it's kind of this weird hybrid, which is why it comes out not the same as moving with Passover. Passover is paid to the Hebrew calendar, which is also based on a lunar cycle. So basically, it starts in the middle of what they call the month of Nisan, when the moon is full. And what that means is it typically falls in March or April on our calendar. Now, as a result, that means that Passover often is very close to Easter. And this year, it overlaps. Next year, Passover will begin on Wednesday, April 5th. And Easter is going to be on the next Sunday, which is April 9th. So there again, we'll have some, some, uh, uh, some uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Overlap. We'll have some overlap there, some Passover lap, if you will. Um, however... That timing uh, gets thrown off by leap year every year um, uh, because of the difference between that and the Hebrew calendar. Um, so that pushes the, the, the month of Nisan or mid-Nisan even further out. So Passover sometimes becomes much later. So for example, in 2024, which is a leap year, Easter is March 21st 
and Passover is going to be April 22nd, so they're going to be almost a month apart. So what's, why am I sharing all that? Well, mostly because I thought you might be interested, but also to show you that they're not the same holiday. They don't happen at the same time. It's not just sort of the Jewish version of the Christian holiday, the Christian version of the Jewish holiday. And yet, having said that, the connection between Passover and Easter is, of course, more than happenstance. It's more than just sort of an interesting accident that they line up at similar times. In fact, the very first Easter uh, did take place uh, during the Passover week, very similar to the, to the overlap we have this year. And it did that with a very specific purpose, and, a very, and there was a reason that that happened. Um, and in the first few centuries, as I mentioned, the first few centuries of the early church, Easter was called Christian Passover. And in fact, in many parts of the world right now, Christians don't even know the term Easter. They know it as Christian Passover, and that's how they think of it. And so even at the beginning, there was, there, it was pretty divisive and pretty complicated. The, 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 the truth is that as time went on, there were some schisms that happened more and more in, in, in some fairly aggressive ways as time went on between the Jewish and the Christian worlds. And because of that, there became a desire to make sure that that Christians wanted to make sure that, that Christians weren't hanging out too much with Jews, and Jews wanted to make sure Jews weren't hanging out too much with Christians, and, and they wanted to make sure that these things got kind of separated. But it really wasn't an argument about creating a whole new holiday. The, the Christians didn't think of Easter as a whole new holiday. They really just thought of it as the proper way to celebrate Passover. And the Jews thought of that what they were doing as the proper way to celebrate Passover. And so it kind of became, that became the argument. And over time, we just, in America, we call it Easter. So, of course, there's a lot of differences between Passover and Easter, but I really think it's helpful. I think it, it can be very meaningful for us as Christians to recognize how our celebration of Easter really draws from our rich and ancient Jewish heritage. So that's what I want to do tonight, is just kind of walk through the, the Passover story. And I know a lot of you know this, some of you may not, and even for those of you who do, it'll be a nice refresher. Um, and so whether it's new information or just a reminder, I hope this kind of encourages you and enriches your Holy Week and your Easter season this week. That's really our goal. So Here's where the, um, the, the Passover comes from. Here's the actual institution of it in Exodus 3, uh, 13, 3 through 10. It says this, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord you brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. Uh, sorry. Yeah, today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere on your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand, and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. So there it is. That's where God passes on through Moses the actual command to keep the Passover every year all the time. And to do it in a certain way. And why? To do it to remember how God brought them out of Egypt. That God brought them out of slavery and into freedom. That he rescued them from bondage and made them a, a people of freed peoples and taught them how to do that. And they're to pass this on to their children. They're to tell their sons. They're to tell their daughters, daughters that this is what happened. So we can see the Passover holiday is extremely ancient. It's passed on through Moses. This is one of the most ancient documents we have. And if you believe, as I do, that the written document came long after the oral tradition had been passed down for, for decades and decades and decades, maybe centuries. If you believe, as I do, that the oral tradition is much older, this is one of the most ancient holidays 
that has ever been instituted here for Passover. And it's the, so here we see the mechanics in Exodus 13. This is the mechanics of it. This is when it happened. The exhortation here is to remember themselves as people that God brought out of slavery, that they're a new nation. And this exhortation to remember this is given over and over through the Old Testament. This becomes, in fact, the identifying event for them as a nation. When, when things happen to them, this is how they remember who they are. Just, just consider this for a moment, that the, the Jewish world, the Jews went through decades and decades, or decades, went through centuries and centuries of exile and oppression. And, and so they, they, they didn't have a land that they could always count on. They would sometimes be taken out of their land, and they'd be taken into captivity. There were, there were moments where the temple was actually destroyed. So how do you identify yourself? If you're a people, but you don't, you don't your country is gone, and then the place where you worship, your temple, is gone. How, how do you keep yourself, how do you identify who we are as a community? And God told him, remember this, do this ceremony, do this Passover, because that will help you remember, you are the people that I rescued from Egypt. That's who you are. You are the people that I made, free people. You are the people of God. That's who you are. Regardless of where you are, this is one thing nobody can take from you. They can take your temple. They can take your homeland. They can take, you know, your, your elements of worship. But they cannot take this memory of this event if you don't let them. And so that's the point of Passover is it became the identifying mark for who they were. No matter what was going on in the world around them, no matter who ruled the world at the time, whether it was the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Assyrians, no matter who ruled the world at the time, the Jews could still remember who they were as long as they continued to do this particular ceremony. And it's true, there's large chunks of history where it seems the Jews forgot to do it at all. But somehow it's been preserved, it keeps coming back, and they continue to do it. And today there's Jews that still celebrate it all over the world. But to understand this context, why this is such an important moment for them, why God wants to identify them, we have to go back even further. We have to go back before Moses. We have to go back even before Egypt and the Pharaoh. We have to go back before Joseph. We have to go all the way back to Abraham. So Abraham. So this story is recorded in Genesis. In Genesis, the story is recorded that Abraham received a promise from God about his children. That God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. Actually, he made him four promises. And this is what they were. Number one, he said you will have children. Lots and lots of them despite your advanced age. So, so here's the thing. Abraham was old. Sarah was old. They were past childbearing age. But God says to him, you and Sarah will have children. Not just, not just children, but children who have children. And children who will have children. And children who will have children. And you will have so many children, so many descendants, that you won't even be able to count them. They'll be like the number of grains in the sand, uh, the number of grains of sand on the beach. They'll be like, or in the desert. They'll be like the number of stars in the sky. You have so many children, no one will be able to count them. Number two, he says, they won't just be a wandering people. You'll have a land for your descendants. I'm going to give you a place to settle. So they won't be wandering and they, they won't be slaves to other people. They'll be free people living in their own land. They'll have stability and security and freedom. And he said, this is the promise that it will give you as well. Not only, but he promised him that this land would be, would be what he said, was filled with milk and honey, meaning prosperous, right? When you have security and stability and land that's abundant, you can grow things, you can have some degree of prosperity. So he promised him, you'll have descendants, and your descendants will have land to live on. This is two promises God makes. And he does take them and show them the exact land that he's going to have them be on. Number three, he says, your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. Not only will you have descendants, not only will they have land to live on, but they will be a blessing to nations all over the world. Now, I think when he said this, part of what he meant is, they'll be blessing to the rest of the world because you'll be reflecting me. And as I want to bless the world, people will see what I do through you, and that will bless them as well. 
Uh, number four, he said, I will be with your descendants and with you. In other words, they will be my people. So the idea here is he says to Abraham, I will be with you. But guess what? I'm also going to be with your children, and I'm going to be with your children's children, and I'm going to be with your children's children. And God reiterates these promises over and over. And even that, that promise of I will be with you, that becomes a really important promise God continues to repeat to the descendants. There's a point with Moses, we're going to talk about Moses in a little bit, but there's a point in the story of Moses where Moses is leading the, the Israelites to the promised land, right? Why is it called the promised land? Because it was promised right here. It was promised they would have a land. And so as he's leading them to the promised land, there's a moment where God says, you know what, you guys are, are not listening to me, you're not following the covenant, you're not obeying me, I'm going to go ahead and give you the promised land because I said I would, but I'm not going with you. I'm just fed up. And I think he did this really because he wanted Moses to think through this, and Moses does think through it. What Moses ends up saying to God is, look, God, you made us a couple of promises. You not only promised us this land, but you promised you would be with us. And Moses essentially says to God, if I have to choose between the promise of the land you promised us and the promise of just being with you, he said, then I don't want the land. I want to be with you. Send the rest of them to the promised land. I want to stay here in the middle of the desert with you because that's the most important promise to me. To which God says, of course, I'm going to give you both. I just wanted to hear it out of your mouth, basically. And, and, but, I, but it's interesting that Moses recognizes that promise of God being with him as, as maybe the most important promise God made to the descendants of Abraham. So these are the promises. You'll have lots and lots of children. You'll have a land for your descendants. Your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. And, and I will be with you and your descendants. So we see through Genesis, we see the first promise begin to fulfill, be fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac as a son. And, and we begin to see that the, the, the children begin to multiply. Isaac has, has children. And then Jacob, his son, has children. And Jacob has has 12 children, and then we have the story of Joseph, and, and then we see more and more children multiply and multiply. So it begins to be fulfilled as we go through the book of Genesis. And, and even the second promise begins to be fulfilled in Genesis. God takes Abraham to Canaan and says, this is the land they will receive. And then we see even the third and fourth promises fulfilled kind of in a, in a big way by the time of, of Joseph. And that leads us to the next part of the story, which is the story of Joseph. So you might remember the story of Joseph, but again, for those who don't remember or need a refresher, here's the basic idea. Briefly. So here's what happens. Joseph is the son of Jacob. He's got 11 brothers. And, and Joseph is the favored son of his father. And so that causes a lot of friction, as you can imagine, with his other 11 brothers, because it's not even, Jacob isn't even careful about it. <laughs> he's not discreet, nothing. But Joseph makes it worse, because Joseph has these visions and these dreams that tell him that he's going to be a great leader and all the other brothers are going to bow down to him. And like a typical teenager, Joseph does not understand the, uh, the, the, the wisdom and discretion. And so he just chooses to flaunt this in front of his brothers and tells them about it over and over. And so they begin to develop a really deep hatred for Joseph. And so they, they decide they want to kill him. And, but there's a little argument among them, and some of them want to kill him, some of them don't. But ultimately what they end up doing is they sell him to a band of Ishmaelites. They sell him into slavery to Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites, interestingly enough, descendants of another one of Abraham's children. So they, send him, they, they sell him into slavery to, to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites take him to Egypt, and they sell him to Potiphar, who's one of the officers of the Pharaoh there. And to make a long story short, Joseph is faithful, and he, he honors God and obeys God, and God gives him wisdom and special insight. And because of that, Joseph ends up becoming arguably the most powerful man in Egypt, definitely the second most powerful man in Egypt. And as the second most powerful man in Egypt, he has, he has an inside track because God lets him know that there's going to be this famine coming. Um, and so using uh, the wisdom that God gives him and the insight that God gives him, Joseph realizes that they should store up the food that they have during the times of plenty so they'll be prepared for the famine. So there's this worldwide famine, but only in Egypt do they have enough food because Joseph saved it and stored it up. 
And it says this, interestingly enough, it says that Joseph blessed all the other nations. Every nation in the world came to Egypt to receive grain during the time of the famine. So here it is, again, we're seeing the promise being fulfilled. Though all the nations are being blessed through Joseph. We also see that the, uh, the other promise being fulfilled here of there being many, many descendants in that from the, the, by the time of the end of the book of Genesis, obviously Joseph has died. But what happens is he reconciles with his family before he dies. The brothers come to Egypt. They settle in Egypt. And then they begin to multiply. And over the next few, couple centuries, they multiply incredibly quickly and incredibly extensively. And there's, there's potentially a million Jews, Hebrews, by the time this is done. And so, so, so we're seeing all four promises here, except they're not in their own land yet. And that takes a turn for the worse because we're also told that what happens is as the population of the Jews expands and as Joseph dies and we have a new Pharaoh that comes along who doesn't remember Joseph, he becomes very concerned about these Hebrews and he's afraid that they're going to cause a revolution. And so he puts them in bondage and makes them slaves. And so they become just slave labor and slaves, literal slaves, for the Egyptians. And to further curtail any growth of this potentially troubling population, the Pharaoh forbids Hebrew women to have baby boys, and he actually uh, orders the execution of all baby boys that are born at a certain point. And this is where the story of Moses comes into play. So Moses, as some of you may remember, is spared from death when his parents put him in a basket. So that, again, they're supposed to, as soon as the baby boy is born, the midwife is supposed to kill him, but the midwives don't want to do that. So in this case, they don't. And the, the mother takes Moses and hides him in a basket and puts the basket among the reeds, what are called the bulrushes, which is essentially just reeds along the Nile River. So it's not like he's floating down the river. He's kind of hiding in amidst these plants, these reeds that are in the river, but he's kind of there. And, and we're not sure entirely why the mother did this, but I suspect that what happened is what she had hoped would happen. And that's that an Egyptian comes along discovers this baby in this basket, and adopts him as their own. It just so happens this, this Egyptian is Pharaoh's, one of Pharaoh's daughters. So Moses gets raised by this Pharaoh's daughter, um, in the, uh, and, and actually by his own mother, because the Pharaoh adopts her as a, as a nursemaid for him, which is kind of uh, a nice irony. But as he grows up, he realizes his heritage. He's not really Egyptian, he's, he's Hebrew. And he's tormented by the enslavement of his people. So he, at one point he tries to take matters into his own hands, it doesn't go well. He ends up kind of exiling himself to the desert to save his own life. You can read the journey of Moses in the book of Exodus. You can read the story. It's, it's really a great story, just his, his growing up and, and what he does. But the, the ultimate point is, at a certain point, God speaks to Moses directly. And he comes to him and he says, he commissions Moses to rescue his people from Egypt. He says, the time has come to rescue the, the, the people from Egypt. And he reiterates to Moses the promises that he made to Abraham. He says, all of the children of Abraham are many, as I promised and the and the, the children of Abraham, but they don't have their own land. So Moses, it's time now. You're, I'm going to have you take them out of Egypt, and I'm going to take you and them to the land I promised them all those uh, centuries ago. And so God says, we're going we're gonna to fulfill the promise. So he sends Moses back, and he has a plan. And he tells Moses the plan that he has to get them out. And the plan involves a series of plagues to eventually convince Moses to let the Jews go. See, Pharaoh, not Moses, Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't want to let the Jews go. Why doesn't he want to let the Jews go? Because they're great slave labor, right? I mean, number one, he doesn't want, he's, he's got them under control right now, but they're also free labor. And he doesn't want to let them go. It's a huge population, just kind of let go. He's going gonna, 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 gonna to lose out. So even though he's worried about them before now, he's not worried about them. He's got them enslaved, and he doesn't want to let them go. So when Moses says, you, you need to let them go, the Pharaoh's like, nope, not going to happen. So God has this plan, which includes a series of plagues. 
and you've probably seen these, and this is a, a picture from the Ten Commandments uh, with um, uh, Charlton Heston. And, and so when Pharaoh proves especially stubborn, they go through a series of plagues. And, and what happens is every so often Pharaoh's like, well, now I'll let them go. Yeah, you're right. This plague was too much. Go. But then as soon as things get better, as soon as God removes the plague, as soon as they recover just a little bit, Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to let them go. Why would I let them go? He just clearly, he keeps hardening his heart, it says. And so finally we get to a point where the, God comes to the final plague. And, and all along each of these plagues, by the way, have also been showing the Egyptians that God, the Hebrew God, is more powerful than the Egyptian gods. Each of the plagues sort of attacks an, an area that was supposed to be protected by one of their Egyptian gods. And God says, see, I'm stronger than, than your gods because I can do this with your water, and I can do this with your crops, and I can do this with the weather, and I can do this with the light. He's just, he says, I am, I'm in charge of all that. And so each plague is, is there to convince the Egyptians that God is who he says he is, and they should let the, the Israelites go. But they, Pharaoh still doesn't let them go until eventually we get to the final plague. And the final plague is kind of a thumb in the nose at Pharaoh himself, because remember when the Pharaoh wanted to kill all the baby boys uh, of the Israelites. Well, what God says is, here's what I'm going to do. At a certain time, at a certain moment, every firstborn child in every household in Egypt is going to die. Firstborn male, rather. In every household in all of Egypt is going to die. They're just going to die. And, and, and this, is, this is amazing, and it's scary, and it should have been scary enough to, to cause the Pharaoh to want to release the people, but he doesn't. He doesn't believe it'll happen. He doesn't believe God's that strong. He believes his Egyptian gods are going to fight against the, the God of the Jews and is going to win. But in every moment of judgment in Scripture, there's also a story of corresponding grace. And there is the corresponding grace here in this story. And what happens is God says, look, here's the deal. I'm going to kill all the firstborn children, firstborn males, of every household in Egypt. And by the way, when he says it, there's no distinction made between Jews and Egyptians. And he says, it's just going to happen. And he says, but, but, he says, for everybody who, who shows that they're trusting me, everybody who throws themselves at my mercy, everybody who shows that they're trusting in my power rather than the power of the Egyptian gods to protect them, everybody who shows me that by doing what I ask them to do, I will spare them and their children will live. And again, it doesn't specifically say this is only true for the Jews. So, but what he does say is this. He says, take a lamb. A, a lamb and, and sacrifice that lamb um, and, and, and eat the lamb, but also take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost outside your house. This may sound kind of barbaric to us. This may sound kind of weird. The, the reality is it probably was pretty, it, it was something they would have understood culturally. It mirrored the culture they were in, and in that sense probably would have made sense to them as a way to show their commitment to the God of the Hebrews. So he says, take this, this unblemished lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and then what will happen is the angel of death will pass over any house which has this blood on the doorpost because I'll see that you are to me and trust me more than the Egyptian gods. And again, I don't think it specifically says this is only true for the Jews. I think any, any Egyptian could have taken the same opportunity, slain the lamb, put the blood on their doorpost, and I think the angel of death would have passed over them too because it really was about this faith, this trust in who God is. But that's where the term Passover comes from, is that the angel of death passed over them. And, and it's not just that the angel of death passed over them, but as a result of this plague, Pharaoh finally says, yeah, absolutely, get out of here. And he tells Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he lets them go. So this story is all part of the package of how God got them free. He got them out of Egypt. Now, the Pharaoh is really stubborn, and as soon as they leave, he regrets having let them go, and he chases after them to bring them back, which leads to the Red Sea story that you've probably heard about 
where God provides a way for the Israelites by opening the sea in front of them and then closing it behind them so they can escape. But what's happened here is they've crossed the Red Sea and they stand on the other side is it must be dawning on them that God's promises are coming true. Here they look around them and there are massive numbers of them. Again, some estimates are there were a million Jews at this moment that left during the Exodus. And so there's these massive numbers of, of, of Hebrews. They're like, wow, look at all our descendants. Number two, Moses tells them, I'm taking you to the promised land. They're on their way to the promised land. They've waited a long time for this moment. But what Moses fears, and God confirms, is that when things get better, they're going to forget everything they've learned about God. And they're going to forget who they are as God's people that have been freed. See, Moses is concerned when they get to the promised land and it's filled with milk and honey and things are going well, he's concerned that they're simply going to forget that the people they are is not the people just of the promised land, but the people of the God who rescued them from Egypt, the people of the God who brought them freedom from slavery, the people of the God who used his mighty power to rescue them and make them his people and teach them what it means to be a free people. And so Moses says, as God leads them to at this moment, he says, look, you cannot forget this. You have to remember this. And the way you're going to remember this is every year you're going to celebrate a particular ceremony which is going to help you remember what God has done. And that's why we come to that passage that we read that Moses said to this people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. The point of that is they had to leave in a hurry. God had told them, when the Pharaoh says go, you need to go fast because he's going to change his mind again. And so don't, don't make anything with yeast because bread with yeast in it has to rise. So make your bread without yeast so you can take it right away. Eat nothing containing yeast. So when they celebrate the Passover, they don't eat yeast. Today in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are up to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. So that's Passover. That's the reason for the timing. That's the reason for the ceremony. And that's the reason for celebrating it every year, year after year. So that's the history. That's, that's what is happening with Passover. But now the question becomes, what does this have to do with Jesus? By the way, this picture you're looking at, it may not be what you're used to seeing as a picture of Jesus. I, find, I thought it was an interesting one. It's an AI, artificial intelligence rendering, of what Jesus most probably looked like based on culture, ethnicity, and time. Now, of course, we have no idea what he actually looked like, but this is probably a better picture than a lot of the ones that you've seen, and I kind of like it. I, I can hang out with that guy. He looks pretty pleasant in that picture. Um, anyway, so that's, that's the picture we're using tonight. But what does this have to do with Jesus? What does the Passover have to do with Jesus? Well, remember those promises that were made to Abraham, right? So what happened is once they reached the promised land, there were lots of times that these promises appeared to be being fulfilled. They looked like they were in full bloom, just like during Joseph's time, when it appeared like, except for the fact they weren't in their land, it appeared like the promises were being fulfilled. And, and the moment that they, they come into the promised land, obviously, here it is, another piece of the promises being fulfilled. But the problem is, during the time that they're there, they start running into conflict almost immediately, and they start running, in, running into conflict with their neighbors, and, and, and some of the land is occupied, and, and they have trouble getting in. And, 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 and what happens is, we have the book of Judges, which tells us that 
they go through this period of having different leaders and different heroes. Because what happens is they get oppressed. They get put in bondage by one of their neighbors. And then they cry out to God, and God rescues them, and he gives them a hero who rescues them, a specific anointed judge, it's called, a hero who rescues them from, from their oppressors. And then, while that hero is alive, they do pretty well. They honor God, they worship God, they remember the Passover, they remember who he is. But then as soon as that judge dies, they forget. And it says everybody did whatever they wanted. They forget the law of the Lord, and they completely forget what God called them to do and who they were. They forget who they were. They are free people of God, rescued by God from Egypt. But they forget who they are. And then as soon as they forget, you know, they have bad judges, they have bad leaders, and they cry out to God, and he brings them another hero, and the hero raises them up. And then after the judges, there's kings, and the kings follow the same pattern. You have kings who are good, who really remind them who they are in God, and then you have kings who forget themselves, and they have really bad moments. And they're constantly fighting oppression and bondage and slavery and, and, and all these other forces that are, that are oppressing them. And so here they are, they're supposed to be these people that are free, rescued from Egypt, but they're going through these cycles. And so they begin to wonder... Are these promises ever going to be fulfilled? And what God begins to do is he begins to speak to them through the prophets. And he begins to clarify a little bit more about these promises. And when he begins to clarify them, is, is he points to the judges, and he points to the kings, and he, says, and he points to Moses, and he says, remember these heroes in the past who have rescued you? You know, Moses who rescued you out of the land of Egypt? That's reinforced a lot. Remember these other judges who rescued you? Remember the King David who rescued you? He begins to say all these, these heroes that came along and rescued you from the oppressors. God said, guess what? I am going to send you, and I've been telling you for a while, but he begins to clarify, I'm going to send you a hero, a once forever hero, a hero who will finally bring you into the fullness of the promises that I gave Abraham, a, a hero who will finally bring you into your own kingdom. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more bondage. There will be no more slavery, and you will stand and worship me, and, and, and there will be a hero that will do this. And the word hero in the Hebrew scriptures, it's a word that is just anointed one, right? Like chosen one. We have that in a lot of stories. You know, Frodo is kind of the chosen one in the Tolkien stories. Or, or Luke Skywalker is kind of the chosen one in the, in the first trilogy of Star Wars. And so you have these, these heroes that, that are kind of anointed. They're chosen. And in Hebrew, that word for anointed one is Messiah. And so God begins to teach them, look for the Messiah. Watch for the Messiah, the hero who will rescue you. Finally, the cycle will end. Once for all, you will become uh, uh, the kingdom that you were supposed to be, and you will be rescued forever, and no more bondage. Watch for that Messiah. And so they do. They begin to wait and long for and, and look for the Messiah to come. And so this is the context when Jesus enters the picture where the Jews are once again under oppression to a foreign occupation, this time to the Romans. So here they are. They're under occupation by the Romans. They're oppressed. They're not a free people again, but once again, they're waiting for the Messiah. The one, the hero who's going to finally come rescue them, this time from the Romans, and is going to return them to their kingdom. And this time, it will be forever, right? Now, during this time, there were, in fact, many people who came along claiming to be the Messiah, but a lot of them proved false. They just didn't do or say the things that they were told the Messiah would do. Remember, the prophets had given them a lot of information on this hero, and they just didn't seem to be like that. And so eventually, they would either be forgotten uh, you know, they would be exciting for a moment, and the people would be like, no, nah, I don't think they're Messiah. Or they would, if they became a threat, if it looked like they were actually going to overthrow the Roman government, or even, even try to, then the Romans would execute them. And of course, once they were executed, then that was the end of that as well. And so, so this is kind of the cycle. You have these people coming in that are, that are claiming to be the Messiah. And this is the context into which Jesus steps. Well, then, you have this strange prophet. 
another prophet who appears, and his name is John. John is very possibly from a very uh, zealous and sort of radical uh, group of Jews who were waiting for the Messiah and who believed that a, an extremely rigid set of rules and laws were going were gonna to lead them to that. Their dietary habits were very strict. Their, their, their cleansing habits were very strict. Baptism was a big part. Cleanse ceremonial washings was a big part of what they did um, called the Essenes. And, and some people believe that this John was a member of the Essenes. It might explain why he was eating weird food he was eating, like locusts and honey, why he was wearing itchy clothes instead of normal clothes. Um, but, but John starts doing something different than the Essenes. He, he, if he was an Essene, he leaves for whatever reason. Maybe he was excommunicated or maybe he chose to. He leaves the, the community, kind of the, 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 the retreat, kind of the monastery community they're in, and he starts to preach. But he's still preaching very much this idea that the Essenes had, which is, the Messiah is coming, and he's coming soon, and we need to be ready for him. And so John begins to preach to people about the kingdom of God, because that's what the Messiah is. The Messiah is going to bring the kingdom. Remember, that's what they're waiting for. So, <coughs> so he begins to preach this, and he begins to baptize people. Again, also a very seen thing to do. He begins to baptize people who are waiting for the Messiah. And he's, but he's constantly pointing to the Messiah. It's really important to understand that he never claims to be the Messiah. John doesn't. He doesn't say, I'm the Messiah. He just is saying the Messiah is coming, and he's coming very soon. And when Jesus actually comes on the scene, it's amazing. There's John. He's preaching to his disciples, and Jesus arrives. And John, without hesitation, says, that's him. That's the man. I am not worthy to tie the sandals of this man because he is the Messiah. I am simply here to point him out. And there he is. There's the Messiah. And at that point, John perceives his ministry as basically over. His ministry was to point to the Messiah. Having done that, and the Messiah has now arrived, John is very happy to kind of recede into the background. And, and so over the next three years, Jesus does, his ministry takes a very interesting characteristic. Now, we know his mission was to die on the cross and be resurrected for our salvation. But he has this ministry for three years leading up to that, right? Why didn't he just die on the cross right away? Well, probably a lot of reasons, but, but one is that during those three years, he has a ministry to do, and that ministry involves basically two things. One is to prepare the apostles, to bring the apostles together and prepare them so that when he does die and resurrect, they will be ready to start the church, to start the, the community of Christians, of the, the church that will move forward. But the other reason he's there, and the other thing he does, which is also connected, but a little bit different, what he does is he spends time proving that he's the Messiah. So many of the miracles he does are not just miracles showing that he was powerful and even that he was God, which they might have been, but they were also miracles showing, even more importantly to the Jews, that that he was the Messiah. He did things that had been predicted by the prophets. The things he did, the things he said, even just things he couldn't control, like who he was and where he was born, all of these things lined up to convince people that he was the hero they'd been waiting for. He fits so well. Now, he said a lot of radical things that they didn't expect. He said a lot of unexpected things they didn't understand. And he insisted on some things that made them uncomfortable. But there were so many other things that lined up with who the Messiah was supposed to be that his popularity grew. And he became more and more uh, recognized across the, the country as, as, um, as the Messiah. Because he did and said the things that they expected the Messiah would say and do. Jesus even goes so far as to quote Old Testament prophets who were speaking of the Messiah and saying they were speaking about him. He's very straightforward. He doesn't really, he isn't really obscure about it. He is claiming to be the Messiah, but he's also proving it by what he says and does. So as his following grows... There's, there's another thing that's happening. One of the reasons for the Essenes uh, and, and their zealousness and for the kind of a schism among various Jewish groups was because there was a conviction among a lot of the Jews 
that the temple leadership had become corrupt. And this seems to be largely true historically, that the temple leadership at the time of Jesus was corrupt. And so as Jesus begins to rise as the Messiah, this corrupt temple leadership, along with Rome, they become concerned that Jesus is stirring things up too much. The, 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 the temple leadership has kind of a cushy position here in the relation to Rome. They don't really want Rome to, to, be, to clamp down on the Jews. And, and plus, they don't want the attention taken away from them. And so the, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, they begin to be concerned about Jesus. But as they begin to oppose Jesus, this only makes his popularity among the masses, among those who are convinced that, that one of the things the Messiah was supposed to do specifically was cleanse the temple. And so they become more and more convinced he's the Messiah. His, he has the right enemies <laughs> in their mind to be the Messiah. And so this leads us to Palm Sunday, which is today. So today is called Palm Sunday. So what does Palm Sunday refer to? What happens at this moment? So here's what it says in the, in the scripture. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Listen to the way they, they call him. They call him the king of Israel. By the way, he comes riding in on a donkey in exactly the way that one of the prophets predicted the Messiah would do when he was ready to, actually, he comes riding in on a donkey, which is what a king does after he's already won the victory. So what this is saying is to them, to the people who are waiting for the Messiah to overthrow the Roman government, it's like Jesus is saying the time has come, it's happening any second now. And so they're calling him the king of Israel, right? This is the new king. This is that new Messiah, that new judge, that new hero that we've been waiting for, and he's going to bring us everything that we've been waiting for. He's going to overturn the Romans. He's going to provide the, the, all the blessings, all the promises that God had given. So that's why they call him the king of Israel. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That means the anointed one, the chosen one. And by the way, the word Messiah in Hebrew, I mentioned, is that chosen one. In the Greek, that word is Christ. So that's why he's called Jesus the Christ. Not because Christ is sort of a last name, but because that's his title. He's Jesus the Messiah. He's Jesus the chosen one. So anyway, Hosanna. Hosanna is an interesting term. There's no question that at the time of Jesus, Hosanna had come to mean just praise him, celebration, praise the Lord. It's just a great, joyful celebration. It's interesting, perhaps not relevant to this particular crowd, but interesting for us to note that Hosanna in the Old Testament is only used once. And when it's used in the Old Testament, what it seems to actually mean is help us, save us, rescue us, Lord. So I think it's, it's relevant, not necessarily that the crowd meant this, but for us to recognize that what they're shouting was not just a joyful celebration, but also a plea for deliverance. And in many ways, that is absolutely what they meant, whether they understood Hosanna to mean that or not. So this is a, this is a great moment. This is like the, the pinnacle of his, of his success, it appears, right? The apostles are like, finally, he's getting his due. We're getting our due because they're with him. And, and this is like a great moment. Hosanna, blessed is the king. Everybody has this anticipation Jesus is about to do something stir this crowd into a revolution and, and be that hero, be that Messiah, be that Moses, that David, that, that Solomon, that Gideon, that, that hero that they've seen examples of in the past, but for whom they've been waiting that once and for all is going to make everything okay. But over the next three days, Jesus does nothing of the sort. He doesn't stir up a revolution. In fact, he seems to do opposite things, and he begins to say increasingly troubling things. Things that don't line up with what they understood should be happening. For one thing, he seems to be claiming to be God himself. Now, I think the apostles had actually become okay with this. They began to recognize that, that Jesus, the Messiah, was so powerful, had done so many amazing things in their sight, 
that they begin to understand the Messiah was, in one sense, God in the flesh, in some real significant way. But that's a bizarre thing for him to be saying. David never claimed to be God. Moses didn't claim to be God. Far from it. Second thing he began to say, which really began to trouble them, is he began to insist that his kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom instead of a material kingdom. Now, by the way, he'd been saying these things before. But, but we see that they're kind of beginning to dawn on him, and he begins to do things to show this is what he really thinks. This wasn't just rhetoric used to stir up the crowds because he's not trying to stir up the crowds. In fact, he's trying to distance himself at this point. And so with the apostles, he, he continues to insist his kingdom is going to be a spiritual kingdom. What does that even mean? What does that mean in practical terms? How can that be the Messiah that he already been waiting for? But perhaps most troubling of all to the apostles, he keeps insisting that this kingdom of God is not going to arrive through a big victorious battle that Jesus is going to fight in the coming days, but is going to come somehow, some way, through Jesus' suffering and death. And Jesus is telling them it's going to happen in the next few days. This doesn't make sense. It's not a popular message. And the Jews are having trouble with it themselves. So three days, three days later, we can see that things have already begun to turn that way. One of Jesus' followers has just given up on him altogether and has betrayed him to the Jewish leaders, who in turn are looking to turn him over to the Romans. They want him crucified. The, the popular crowd that was with them, they've all kind of dissipated. Most of them have left. Some of the things he said are just beyond them. At one point, he even says to them, uh, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh, which is troubling enough for us because it sounds cannibalistic, although that's not really what he meant. It sounds that way, but even more troubling to them because you're not supposed to eat anything with his life's blood in it because, because the blood is where the life is, and you're not even supposed to do that with animals. How on earth could Jesus be saying, this is what we're supposed to do with him. So Jesus wants to kind of, I think, explain things to his followers, have a real moment to explain them, give them comfort as his death is approaching. Tell them, don't freak out when I die. It's all part of the plan. Try to somehow get them to understand all this. And so he gathers them for a meal. He says, let's get together. Let's have a meal. Let's have the Last Supper. But this isn't just any meal. Now, this is Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper. It's not very accurate, uh, but it's really recognizable. So we'll use it just for now as, as a symbol of what's happening. But the point is that this Last Supper wasn't just any meal. It was a Passover meal. This is part of the Passover feast. Now, there's some argument about when this is. Is this the actual Passover Seder, or is this some other Passover meal? Because there doesn't seem to be a Passover lamb at this meal. Other people argue this is the Passover meal, and the reason there's no Passover lamb is because part of the message that Jesus gives during this meal is that he is the lamb. He points them back to that story to the reality, to the history of who they are. He says, remember who you are, and remember who your God is. You are the people, because that's what Passover is reminding them about. So by having this at the Passover meal, is reminding them, you are the people who've been rescued from Egypt by God. You've been set free from slavery by God, and God used a hero to do that. And, and you are the people that were led by God's mighty hand. And remember that the Passover celebrates as you sacrifice this lamb. It sacrifices that you were protected by the blood of the lamb that the blood of the Lamb caused the angel of death to pass over you. And then he says to them, as whenever you do this, presumably whenever you celebrate the Passover meal, perhaps any meal, but he says, whenever you do this, the wine and the bread, do this, and the wine and the unleavened bread in this case, do this in remembrance of me. For this wine is my blood shed for you, and this bread is my body broken for you. Why no Passover lamb? Because the bread and the wine, which represent Jesus' own blood and body, is the Passover lamb. It's as if he's saying to them, I am the perfect lamb which is going to be sacrificed on your behalf. 
And that is how you will pass over from death to life. That is how the angel of death will pass over you. My sacrifice will bring you freedom from bondage and bring you a new life. Will rescue you from the slavery of idolatry as it rescued the, the, the Jews from the slavery of Egypt. You will be identified by this moment, says Jesus. This is who you are no matter where you go, no matter who's in charge of the world. This is one thing nobody can take from you. This moment, my death, my resurrection. He says to them, I am the resurrection and I am the life, right? He who believes in me will never die. Even though he dies, he will yet live. He's the answer, in other words, to all of the promises of which the first Passover was that first taste. He's the descendant of Abraham. He is the promised land. He is the hero we've been waiting for. He is here to bless all the nations. Now, there are differences between Passover and Easter, of course. And, and I have a little slide here. Professor Shear, he's a professor of the Israeli Bible Institute. He put together this slide in which he just kind of compares the differences between the two. And we're not going to go through all this. But most notably, he points out that Passover is kind of this national deliverance, and Easter is sort of a personal liberation. He points out that Passover is this covenant promise and sacrifice through the Lamb, while resurrection is an unmerited grace. What he doesn't comment on as much, which I would throw in, is that even the unmerited grace we receive is part of a promise. It's not a covenant we adhere to, but it is a covenant God makes with us. It is his fulfillment of his promises made during the covenant. And it comes through Jesus' sacrifice. So even there, it's not so radically different. But Professor Shear goes on to point out that even the last two, last ones, number 10, are come to the same thing. Number 10, he says that, that, it's about, that, that Passover is also a ceremony which gives them hope. It not only looks to the past, but it looks to the future for the messianic restoration and reign of the Messiah, for the moment when that hero will come. And then he points out that for us, Easter is also a picture of hope, of a global change when Jesus will return. Well, I would say he didn't even have to change the words there, because what we're also looking for is the messianic restoration and reign of the entire universe. Now, so this is, this is it, right? We know that our personal liberation has come through the resurrection. We have, we have been passed over by the angel of death because we have relied on the blood of the Lamb, of Jesus. And, and because of that, we're saved and, and we, we have our salvation, and that's why we celebrate the resurrection. But Easter isn't just about celebrating our personal resurrection, but it is also about celebrating the, the communal uh, restoration of everything. It's about the restoration of God's kingdom. It's about the restoration of God's nation. It's about the restoration of, 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 of all peoples and the reign of the Messiah to come. That we do believe and we do look forward as we look at Easter for when the Lord will return. After he resurrected, he said to the apostles, I will be back for you someday. And so we look forward to that as well. So it makes sense for Christians to celebrate the God of the Passover, for he is the God of the resurrection. They are the same God, of course. And it is true that Passover itself was a taste of the hint of the resurrection to come. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. By the blood of the Lamb, we have been truly passed over by death. So this is why I think it's, it's relevant to recognize that, you know, Passover and Easter come around the same time every year because for the, the Jews, Jesus was the fulfillment of all those promises that the Passover was also the fulfillment of, or at least the beginning of the fulfillment of. And Jesus is the yes, says Paul. Jesus is the yes to every promise God has made. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah. He is our rescue from bondage. He is our rescue from, from slavery. He is our promised land, says the author of Hebrews. He is our hero and our Messiah. And just as the Jews were identified by their rescue from Egypt, so also we always are identified by our belief in the resurrection. 
Paul says, if Jesus was not crucified and was not resurrected, then we have nothing. We have nothing. It doesn't matter what other ceremonies or traditions or convictions, whether we follow the other teachings of Jesus or not, we are the people who have been saved by the resurrection of Jesus. That's the key moment. And think about what a beautiful thing this is. It means no matter where you live, it means no matter who's in charge of the world or who's in charge of the country or who's in charge of your local area or who's in charge of anything, it doesn't matter. We are still who we are. We are not just people of a specific country. We are not people defined by our political ideologies or our political tribe. We are not defined by our racial tribe. We are not defined by our, our creedal tribe. We are not defined by any tribe. As Paul says, there is no Jew or Gentile, barbarian or Scythian or slave or free man. There is only Christ. And Christ is all and Christ is in all. We are identified. We are defined by the resurrection. Don't let anything else define you, brothers and sisters. This is what the Easter reminds us. We do not need to be defined by, by other theologies and creeds which may come and go. We do not need to be defined by cultural ideologies which absolutely come and go. We do not need to be defined by political ideologies which come and go and are all radically imperfect. We are defined by one thing, by the resurrection of Christ. By the resurrection of Christ. And that's what the message of Easter reminds us of. So, just to let you know, a couple other things happening this week. Um, we um, uh, definitely, uh, your focus groups, uh, you know, stay in touch with them. I think many of them will be talking about Easter, or if not, I'm sure they'll be talking about the risen Lord in one way or another. Um, and um, and so, or it's possible that you may all be deciding to attend a, a, to take use your group time to attend a picnic, which is happening on Thursday afternoon. So um, those of you in the church, you got details on this. If you are listening on Facebook and you didn't see that email, or if you're even on Zoom and didn't see that email, let me know. Message me personally. I'll give you the information and the details. But we're going to have a, an, an Easter uh, picnic, a Resurrection Day picnic and, and brunch on Sunday at 11 o'clock. And so we'd love to have you come. Um, and on Friday, Good Friday, I'm going to actually provide a, a, a video link which you can use with your families or in your groups. If you want to use it anytime during the week, I'll actually provide it tomorrow. Um, you can use that anytime uh, as, a, as a way to sort of uh, honor Good Friday, to, to reflect a little bit on what the crucifixion means. Um, and then Sunday, we'll have a sunrise Facebook-only service. It won't be on Zoom, um, so you, you can watch it whenever you want. You can get up with me live and watch it. I'll do it live. Or you can just wait and watch the recording on Facebook later. But we'll do just a little sunrise service uh, just kind of uh, to celebrate what it must have been like when the Lord rose at that moment. We'll have our Easter picnic uh, during the day, and then we'll have a, uh, an Easter service that night. And we'll talk about the resurrection. We'll talk about why that is the defining moment for us and what it means to really pin everything we have on that. Um, so thank you for coming. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.